Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, you're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire. Today, we're asking why is Britain so skint and will we be poorer than Poland by the end of this decade? That's coming up, but first... It's time for our columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, it's a Tuesday. Danny Finkelstein is not here, but we've got an even better two for the price of one. John Stevens, political editor at the Daily Mirror. Hello, John. Hi, morning, Patrick. Great to see you. Good to see you. Dressed down. Well, it's recess. What do you want me to be wearing? I, I mean... Uh, a three-piece suit, mm-hmm. with, complete with waistcoat. Mm-hmm. I, I think that three-piece suits with waistcoats look awful on any day of the year, especially it, the summer. Even but, even at weddings? Yeah, I just think they look terrible. I hate them. hate waistcoats. Not a fan. Jane Merrick, where do you stand on waistcoats? Uh, they're all right. I'm wearing a shirt. Is that all right? That's, so that is exactly the sort of sartorial standards we, uh, <laughs> we like here. <laughs> Uh, yeah, two people in collared shirts, John, you and your mufti. Hope you've brought a pound for the head teacher. I won't come in again. I won't bother <laughs> if you just kind of do this to me, but yeah. Uh, how's, uh, how's August treating you as, uh, as lobby journalists, John? It's been all right. I mean, I was off work last week where it did look fairly... Um, there were a few things around, but you know, it's like in the summer... The smallest a thing can suddenly take light and become a massive issue. And the Tories are obviously hoping the thing that will take light this week will be their Stop the Boats week. Although it feels like they're slightly running out of solid policy announcements already. Uh, Jane, how does this August rank thus far on your list of historical Augusts as a lobby journalist? Yeah, not as good as, um, well, I'm going to say 2001 was my first August and that was a Tory leadership contest. And last year we obviously had one as well. So it's been quite hard going. But I think the story of the summer has been where the party stand on net zero. And it's just a story that isn't going away, you know, triggered by Uxbridge. And we're seeing it on the front pages of every um, newspaper almost every day, you know, a different angle. So 
that's and it's obviously the you know one of the most important issues um facing the world at the moment so it's it's good to have a thing that keeps us going but i've i haven't gone on holiday yet i'm on holiday next week and it's uh it's a long time coming where are you going jane just to sussex actually. very nice yeah a little bit of a staycation very nice john where are you going on holiday well last week i was in cornwall which is where my parents are where i grew up next week i'm going to a wedding in tuscany so that should be rather nice mm. better than Looking out the window here, particularly grey. Who looks after Rory the dog when you're abroad? He goes to a sitter. Um, so, yeah, he'll be with a sitter next week. To babe himself? <laughs> Hopefully, I'm sure I'll find <laughs> out if he doesn't. Uh, right, that's enough about John's dog. Jane, you mentioned green policy, so let's get cracking with that. And on the front page of the Daily Telegraph, there's a new front in this never-ending row. Uh, George Eustace, who was Environment Secretary in Boris Johnson's government, is calling for the ban on new oil boilers uh, to be dropped. Senior Tories warning it'll cost them votes in rural communities. Uh, John, you're from Cornwall. Did you have an oil boiler growing up? No, I'm from Cornwall, but I'm from a um, town in Cornwall. I'm unlike... When I was in school, people who'd moved down from London to Cornwall wouldn't move to somewhere sensible, like a town. They would just go completely from one extreme to the other and live in some remote cottage miles from anywhere where you had to get completely uh, off the grid off grid where you had to have one of these oil oilers where the bus only visited like once every three months or something like that so no i didn't have this problem when i was a child but you can see that you know obviously when we think about people in locations like cornwall we often think about people you know well-off people from london moving down to big homes in the countryside but there is also a lot of poverty in rural places like cornwall and that's why this whole row about whether you bring in this ban on people off grid having oil boilers why it is pretty difficult for some people on low incomes that they are going to find it hard to suddenly be able to stump up for one of these heat pumps, which seems ridiculously expensive and not always particularly effective. And Jane, it's funny, you mentioned the Uxbridge by-election and you, Les, and that is exactly the language George Eustace uses today. He describes this policy as a ULES for rural communities. It seems that you know, this is the by-election that is going to shape the next year of political debate in this country, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And and no matter how you know, different parties have taken, di- learnt different lessons from Uxbridge, and the Tories have been have sort of taken that to mean, oh, we need to water down everything on net zero, which I think is a mistake. But what George Eustace means is that you cannot introduce green policies without some sort of assistance for the people who have to bear the brunt of that transition. And he's not saying, oh, we need to kind of carry on having oil boilers. He's mm. actually saying we need something environmentally friendly. So he's coming up with a more constructive proposal, I think, than actually ministers are on this on this wide agenda. But yeah, exactly. ULES was not particularly about net zero. It was about air pollution. But it exposed the fact that there is this tension between the green transition and environmental policies and the fact that there is a major cost of living crisis that is still raging for many people and I think you cannot have one without the other you have to sort of you have to accept that to take the green transition is happening no matter what but to take voters with you and to take people with you you're gonna have to give assistance and what George Eustace is saying is that there needs to be more support in three years for everybody to suddenly switch to heat pumps which as John was saying is are very expensive there needs to be some assistance and you know, it's going to cost money, but it is. But where does that money come from? Does that come from central government, which is going to mean more taxes? Does it come from green investment? Does it come from stimulating 
green industry, which is what Labour are talking about. It needs a much more, I think, um, honest conversation. And I think George Eustace is trying to have that. And I think actually the Prime Minister and ministers are just ploughing on and saying, oh, let's water everything down and we know we, we can delay this because we just want to win the next election. So you think either party is being straight with voters on this, John? Well, I think that if you look at the Tory reaction to Uxbridge and you've heard a lot of noise, people talking about the 2030 ban on new petrol and diesel cars, etc, etc. The government haven't really actually changed any of their policies. They seem to be appeasing people on the right without actually making any real difference to voters on this front. And I think that the problem with that is if you don't make life easier for people, but you do kind of ruin the country's reputation for being at the front of the Greens transition, then I think that is just damaging both on the world stage, but also trying to show to businesses that this is important to this country and you want to invest in things like green technology, the UK is the place to do it. Do you agree, Jane? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. I mean, it, this, this, as I was saying, this transition is happening and it's as John is saying. It's like a kind of it, they're, they're, it's the worst of both worlds from the Conservative government because they are damaging. You know, two years on from Glasgow hosting COP26, damaging the UK's um, leadership on the green agenda. And as John also says, sort of talking a good game about red meat 2.0 and and sort of tacking to the right, but actually not. What are they actually doing? And can voters see through that? And I think they need to come up with something a bit more constructive and you know Rishi Sunak's going to be seeing the king at the end of this month he's going to probably raise the issue of of climate change and so I think he's going to have to have some better answers. Well at the same time there's an argument that Labour aren't on the same page as the public on much of this too. On the front page this morning Sun, Keir Starmer's mid-Bedfordshire by-election candidate, not that that by-election has been called yet because <laughs> Nadine Dorries is still in post. Uh, it's funny Funny definition of immediate effect, given that she resigned in June. But anyway, uh, Keir Starmer's Labour by-election candidate for that seat, Alistair Stratern, has been revealed to be a Greenpeace activist who dressed as a zombie during an eco-stunt outside the Home Office last November. Uh, Grant Shapps, the Energy Secretary, said that Keir Starmer must show he practices what he preaches for once and block the eco-mob from his candidates list. Now, Keir Starmer, John, on Monday, yesterday, wrote in the Times that Just Stop Oil were contemptible, Labour were obviously steaming into the row over Rishi Sunak's house being uh, picketed or rather invaded by Greenpeace and saying it's totally unacceptable. We hear constantly that Labour have, you know, really uh, grabbed their candidate selection process by the scruff of the neck to stop people embarrassing them. How, how has this happened? And, and what... And, you know, surely it's uh, really embarrassing for Labour, this. I think it's a bit tricky because the Tories have been desperate, as you say, to bind Labour together with all these organisations like Just Stop Oil, even if some of the connections have been rather tenuous. So the Tories keep going on and on about how Dale Vince, who gave money to Just Stop Oil, also gave money to the Labour Party, which I don't think is really proof of very much at all. But this obviously, and you had Keir Starmer, was it in Monday, yesterday's times or the day before, you know, trying to put some distance between him and Just Stop Oil, saying that, you know, their actions have been contemptible. But obviously, when you've got something like this, you've got the candidate in this upcoming by-election, which will no doubt get lots of attention, being linked to environmental groups, even if it is slightly tenuous. I mean, it is basically just... Is, it, ten a zombie is it tenuous, though? Because he's, uh, you know, picketing the Home Office in... Uh zombie outfit with Greenpeace and his partner works for Greenpeace. Not that you can but, judge people by what their partner do, but, you know, it's sort of... He dressed as a zombie at a protest organised by Greenpeace, but I don't think that shows that, 
you know, Keir Starmer's in bed with the people bringing in extreme con- uh, tactics such as picketing the Prime Minister's house in his constituency. What do you think, Jane? Yeah, I think, I mean, are we, you know, are we suddenly saying that peaceful protest is now kind of against the law? I mean, the, the Conservative government has obviously cancelled Greenpeace now. They don't want to talk to them. They've no platform them. There's going to be no engagement. So, I mean, of all the kind of the organisations and countries and states that this government talks to, a relatively peaceful environmental, long-standing environmental group like Greenpeace, a charity, is off the scale. I mean, I just think it is bizarre. And I do think that kind of bigger picture, when you've got the UN talking about global boiling, you've got, you know, the hottest ever sea temperatures, the world, three days, the hottest ever temperatures the world has ever seen. And we're slightly obsessing about, I mean, it is embarrassing for Keir Starmer, but I don't think this is the biggest deal. You know, he carried out a peaceful protest there is a reason why these protests are happening. Um, and that is because we are at a critical stage. You know, whoever leads the next government is going to be responsible for um, delivering the transition to net zero. And I think that kind of getting, you know, demonising Greenpeace is just really bizarre. There's a big difference between taking part in a peaceful protest outside a government building and dressing mm. as a zombie and chucking a load of paint at a government building. And he was doing yeah. the former rather than the latter. I guess the problem for the Labour Party, though, is, as we've been saying, net zero, environmentalism, even though the public, there's broad public consensus that that's a good thing now. But you have to bring the public with you. And they're, you know, the public often look at eco-protesters and say, well, hang on. You're making my life more difficult. We've show, seen in Uxbridge and what George Eustace is saying this morning that people aren't keen on having the cost foisted upon them. And I guess the political risk for Keir Starmer, who's obviously aware that the public aren't really on the side of, or you know, the votes he wants to pitch to aren't really on the side of Just Stop Oil or, to a lesser extent, Greenpeace, as, as you say. The, the political risk for him is... You know, if he wants to be the prime minister who wins an election and does the net zero thing, then he has to walk a very tricky tightrope between, you know, one, seeing in tune with the public, two, recognising the scale of the problem, and three, not allowing himself to be pilloried as, you know, the candidate of Dale Vince or Just Stop Oil or whatever. And, you know, this front page, this picture is you know, regardless, pretty inconvenient for him. Yeah, but you have to show the practical steps that you're going to take so that people aren't left out of potty and so that they can make these changes in the easy way, which doesn't mean they're running up bills of thousands and thousands of pounds, and showing how this change to the green transition, as we call it, is actually going to benefit people when it comes to better paid jobs. There's news of a 33-degree heatwave coming around the corner after another wet weekend this week. But before you plan a trip to the beach, consider the rules of beach etiquette, which travel journalist Ed Gremley has put together in the travel section of today's Times. And Ed joins me now. Hello, Ed. Hello, how are you doing? Very well, thanks for joining us. A very interesting piece this morning, very useful piece you've written in the <laughs> travel section of today's Times. Uh, talk us through the new rules of beach etiquette. You know, all around us, beaches are imposing new rules and... Old conventions are falling by the wayside. What what can we uh, what can we expect? I, well, I think the first thing to point out is it's not all just etiquette. There are actual laws involved now. They're, they're, they're across the continent. Uh, sort of local governments are putting into codifying etiquette into laws. In, in, in Sorrento on the Amalfi Coast, bikinis now are illegal. Uh, Laguna Beach, California, balloons illegal. Uh, Vigo in Galicia is banned, actually banned with fines, weighing in the sea. I mean, I'm not quite sure how, how they do you pl- to How up. do you police that? 
How do you police that? Let's. I mean, I like to think there's sort of an undercover, an underwater, undercover wee squad. I'm not sure. <laughs> Uh, the then, most alarming then, thing for, for Brits, I think, in your list is lounger bugsying has been banned in Benidorm. Lounger bugsying has been banned in Benidorm. I mean, this is this is this isn't. You think this is the silly story? This is front page news on the Sun yesterday, picking up on the story. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This follows. I mean, it's it, it, it's an arms race, isn't it? The, the, the lounger bugsying thing. People try to get there earlier every every you know every year, and uh, this year people have been filmed going out the night before to lay their towels out on on, on the on the sand and on the lounges in Benidorm. So uh, the local authorities in Benidorm have, have, have banned the practice. Anything within six meters of the any towels, any reserving within six meters of the uh, water uh, will will land you a fine. Here's one for you, John. Last week, four motorists drove their cars onto Tawan Beach in UK. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah. Immediately sunk into the sand and had to be rescued by the RLI. Is that the sort of behaviour from London incomers you loathed as a young man? I mean, it literally is. I mean, people are idiots. Why you'd want to put your car... And bet they're nice cars as well. Anywhere near a beach, which has obviously got salt water, which will cause damage to your car, is um, ridiculous. But I thought that some of the points that Ed made were exactly right. That obviously beaches are places meant to have fun. I think that it's less about rules and more about etiquette. Ed in his piece raises the point of. You, know, you just don't want five people to play ball games on the beach, but you just don't want it anywhere near where they're going to kick the ball and you're going to get a load sand of in sand your in your face. But more than that, if you're just lying down in the sun, like with your eyes closed, and then you've got the constant terror of just hearing a ball being kicked and thinking, <laughs> is it going to hit me or not? That is not relaxing. And that's why people are going to play ball games. They should play it well away from anyone sunbathing. Uh, Jane, what's your beach pet peeve? Um... I mean, I think, yeah, things like weeing in the sea, obviously disgusting. But what what is wrong with a ball? On the, I mean, I Don, what are you talking about? There must be so many kind of meat cutes that have happened where a ball is, a beach ball has flown onto someone's towel <laughs> and they've met and they've struck a friendship and they're probably now married. I mean, I think that's a kind of, that is what beaches are about, surely. I, 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 would, think, I, that, probably... I think that if it is a large beach and a lot of beaches in places like Cornwall are very large, there are, you are quite able to play a ball game well away from people who are sunbathing. You know, I'm talking about people right up close to you when you're just trying to relax. Not saying ban all ball games, I'm just saying play in a respectful and courteous is, way. Is, is the revelation here, John, that you're you're just being flirted with constantly and you're not picking up on it? People <laughs> people playing people playing football suspiciously close to you. God, trying no, to I get your attention. Ah, oh, that was it. <laughs> it explains everything. Rather than just being aggressive in return. Uh Ed, uh Beach football, where, where does the what's the, where does the consensus stand on that? I think well, it's fascinating. You guys are saying that the, the, the point of etiquette is to allow everyone to have fun. I think part of the point of etiquette is to stop people having fun. So much of it is handed down to us from the Victorians, where it really is about not not having any fun. For instance, there is this, at least on British beaches, this vague idea, isn't there, that football's bad, but beach cricket is okay because it's essentially less fun, <laughs> less exciting, and hard, you know, and harder to actually, you know whack a ball for six given uh you know it's not exactly the best playing surface uh sandy and beaches. if it's an inflatable ball yeah i'm sure stokesy could do it but yeah for the rest of us <laughs> difficult there's an idea there's an idea john any more beach pet peeves um well another one that ed mentioned in his piece is music when you go to the beach you just don't someone blaring out music from their speaker i mean fine if you want music that's absolutely okay but people are fine with the general like lapping of the sea against the sand and a few seagulls rather than hearing someone's ghetto music blasting out of their kind of 
ghetto blaster. Lapping of the sea it's against the, the beach. Exactly. You, you want you want the sea fun. and seagulls, not music. It's the beach. I mean, Jane. Sure, you surely said this it. is about the right beach, isn't it? It's, if you have a kind of a quiet cove in Cornwall, then clearly that's a vibe where you're not going to have music. But if you go to Margate, for example, or I don't know Brighton, then you get you get what you sort of select, don't you? So, but beaches are places for fun. They're places for music and balls and you know, chatting up people. That was John Stevens from The Daily Mirror and Jane Merrick from The Eye. Remember, you can read all of our Times columnists on the podcast this week by getting yourself a Times subscription. Just go to times.co.uk forward slash Times Redbox. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Now, is Britain skint? According to the Resolution Foundation think tank, low economic growth has left British households £8,800 worse off than their counterparts in other wealthy countries. And it's not just wealthy countries outperforming the UK economy. Countries like Poland, Slovenia and South Korea are all set to overtake us in terms of GDP per capita as early as next year. Now, economic growth is one of Rishi Sunak's five pledges, but so far progress has been slow. Since taking over from Liz Truss in October, growth has been just 0.1% since July 2022. This was the Prime Minister speaking in June this year. I'm sure that actually fills many of you with some anxiety right, and some concern about what's going on and what does that mean for you and your families. Now, I'm here to tell you that I am totally 100% on it and it is going to be okay and we are going to get through this. And that is the most important thing I wanted to let you know today. You should know... Like, I know this won't make it any easier, but what we're grappling with here is something that many countries around the world are also grappling with at the same time as we are right now. 
So how has Britain become so poor and what can be done about it? I'm joined by Sam Dimitriou, Head of Policy at Britain Remade, a campaign to promote economic growth. And some of Britain Remade's analysis informed a piece in last week's Sunday Times by Sam Bowman, which posed this very question. Sam joins me in the studio now, Sam Dimitriou that is. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Now, here's the essay question. Is Britain skin? Well, what's happened is that for the past decade and a bit, productivity growth has been essentially flat. So before the financial crisis, we were roughly close to catching up to uh, and in line with uh, your France's, your Germany's and your United States. What's happened is for the past decade, it's essentially been stagnant. It's grown, it's grown about what it usually would have grown in the space of a year over a period of 10 years. Um, and fundamentally, it's a cliche to say this in pretty much every discussion about productivity this comes up, but uh, economist Paul Krugman made the point, productivity isn't everything, but in the long run, it is. The reason we're richer than we were from 19th century is because we can make more stuff uh, with the same amount of effort. Um, and that productivity, there's a lot of different reasons why that's yeah, been so, stagnant. So if we have a productivity crisis, the answer, the question rather is... Is why? What would you say the top three reasons for this uh, stagnation, as you put it? So I think housing has to be close to the top. So um, productivity varies across the UK. So uh, a worker in London is going to be a lot more productive than a worker in, uh, say, Newcastle. But if you were to move from Newcastle to London, you'd see your salary bump up. Mm. But then you'd look at your paycheck after you've paid your rent and you'd realise you're not actually any better off. So people aren't making those moves to where the best-paying jobs are. It's very easy to... um, it's not that hard to build a house and bring down housing costs if you can get around the, the politics of the issue. Which are uh, incredibly knotty and toxic, basically. Yes, uh, but it's much harder to move that productivity around. But you can do things to improve that productivity. One of the things is you can essentially try and create that sort of London effect where you have lots and lots of people in a big labour market. We know that from Adam Smith, that the bigger the labour market, the bigger the market, the deeper the specialisation. Specialisation is what makes us more productive. So uh, if you can connect uh, the cities in the north up better, make them uh, essentially bigger. But the problem is, if you look at UK cities, about um, two-fifths of people can get to the city centre in half an hour by public transport. If you go to Europe, it's more like 66%. Um, and one of the reasons is, you know, we've, we've not invested uh, in things like trams, in upgrading railways, but that's not just an... That's kind of an issue of decision-making, you know. Um, well, you talk about those two things, right, in particular. Mm-hmm. Connecting the cities of the north, that was something Boris Johnson pledged in 2019 with Crossrail for the North or Northern Powerhouse Rail. That doesn't look like it's going to happen under either government. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if either party wins the next election, I think Labour is still technically committed to it but that's the sort of open-ended spending commitment they're shying away from now Mm -hmm. uh the other thing trams right in this country leeds has been debating whether to build a tram system or a trolleybus symptom uh, system or something like it for about 30 years and in that time you know you have entire high-speed railways built in other countries and you know about a million other cities built in china at the same time you know you can 
it's that sort of laggardly pace of infrastructure development. Is that a big part of it? Yes, and I, and I think there's, there's there's two reasons for that. First of all, decision making in in the UK is very very centralised. Those kind of big transport investments. If you're going somewhere like Denmark, they they'll be raising the taxes to fund for their rail expansions and their tram expansions. If you go to the UK, it's very much uh, you might get a pot of money from central government that you have to bid into, and then you can use that money to produce a business case to persuade central government to give you a bit more cash. Um, so it's it's much less centralised, but also um, it it seems that other countries are able to build things at much lower cost than us. So uh, the the city of Tours in uh, France, about hundred thousand people, they built uh, they had a tramway built for them. Uh, it was about thirty million pounds per kilometre. Now, um, and this is slightly unfair comparison because um, it was going through quite a busy bit of Manchester, but you look at the second city uh, crossing mm. of the recent Manchester Metrolink, which sort of goes through the centre of Manchester, that was about £150 million per kilometre. Wow. So even, even when you're going to a bit more... Uh, out of the centre places it's still something like uh, two, three times cheaper to build it elsewhere so if we can learn from what they're doing and maybe bring those costs down maybe we'd get that infrastructure Well it reminds me I, I went to a, flew out to a stag do in Vilnius from Luton Airport uh, last week and I got the new rapid transit monorail from <laughs> Luton Airport Parkway but that cost something like millions and millions and millions of pounds a metre which is crazy and took years and years to build uh, two other things just briefly if we're looking at what keeps our productivity and growth in a chokehold Brexit because this will be a controversial one lots of people have competing analysis is it impacting on trade one and two is it dampening down growth I think well, so. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that trade, uh, the amount we're exporting to Europe, has fallen, and it's fallen below what we would have expected it to have fallen. And we know that trade uh, is a key driver of growth. It, again, it goes back to specialisation. This is the, these are insights that economists in their eighteenth and nineteenth century have shared. It's it's nothing fresh. But if you can, the more you can trade, the more you can specialise in certain goods, the more productive you will be. If you add costs. Um, and and this is a thing where it's 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 not just uh, you know one deal. The part of the problem is that you look at something like electric cars. Um, well, the, the the rules of origin for electric cars are changing very soon. So they essentially you have to have sixty percent of the car made in either the EU or the UK for it to qualify and not be hit by a tariff. Problem is, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to do that for batteries. Uh, so there's potentially even more trade barriers down the line, and we have to make sure that we're kind of aware that this isn't uh, Brexit's done. It's actually constant relationship with Europe that needs to be negotiated. And evolves sort of dynamically depending on our economic needs. Final question. You know, try and keep this to a sentence or two because we could talk for hours and hours <laughs> and hours about this. Indeed, the Conservative Party have had about five leadership elections on it in the past week. Are taxes too high? I think the issue is that taxes we tax the wrong sort of things and we tax them in a way that dampens growth. You mentioned Lithuania, actually. Well, they've, we're actually moving in the similar direction to them in terms of we're letting people write off the full costs of their investments. Uh, that's a really sensible reform and we should have been doing that a long time ago. For the past uh, sort of 25 years, we've had a very punishing tax system for investment and we've been actually at the, near the bottom of the G7 for pretty much every year of the last 30 years in terms of business investment. 
that's the sort of thing we need to focus on and change things like that uh, it's not going to if you if you you know you cut the basic rate of income tax by a penny that's not going to move the dial on growth fixing corporate tax fixing things like stamp duty which we know have a really bad impact on growth uh, th- those are things you've got to focus on now, Sam, stay with us because we're going to bring in Pippa Malmgreen, a former economic advisor to George W. Bush. Hello, Pippa. Hey. And Arik Shovek, an economist at Bank Polsky in Warsaw. Hello, Arik. Hello. Pippa, we're hearing about Britain's productivity crisis and low wages, stagnant wage growth since 2018. If you visualise this in graphs, it's sort of very, very depressing, particularly those of us who've graduated into the job market in that time. You know, Americans earn so much more than Brits collectively that they could stop working in late September and still earn more than those of us, you know, plugging away for the next three months. Why is that? Well, remember, Americans only take a vacation for two weeks at Mm. most as well, right? So there's not necessarily an even playing field there. Plus, the size of the US economy is so much larger. Um, And I have to say... The U.S. also allows for some things that Britain is not as strong at. So, for example, I think it's kind of weird because on the one hand, the U.K. has a very, very strong startup and tech sector. No question about it. It still beats everything in Europe. It's still the third largest in the world, really, after the U.S. and Israel. But startups are not the only story. Uh, Going concerns also matter, meaning regular corner store businesses, you know, local regional businesses. But even there, as an economist, I'm hearing so much good news about businesses doing well in places like Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham. Um, And the government is bringing in new economic activity to these places through things like um, Quantic Computing Center in Bristol, the life sciences triangle between London, Oxford and Cambridge. So I just start to wonder, are we measuring this correctly? Mm. We are, you know, all of our measures we talk about, GDP, productivity, have we really adjusted them since the Second World War to account for how things actually work versus just imposing a model that keeps giving us standardized answers? It's an open question, a very big question. And are those the sectors that, to an outsider, Britain is excelling and is leading the world on? Oh, when well, it depends if you're in the um, you, if you're in the startup community, if you're talking to venture capital firms, then Britain is absolutely at the top of the list alongside Israel for places to deploy capital, which is why the UK gets three times as much as Germany in that sector. And even France, which has done very well in the last couple of years, everybody agrees that's primarily because of massive tax breaks that are not sustainable over time. On the other hand, in the traditional business sector, Britain still has a world-class reputation in many corporate sectors and in the creative industries, all of which do very well. So again, there's this strange disconnect between the specific stories of what Britain does well and the final numbers. Sam, what, do you, what would you say to all of that? Because it's, it, it sounds like, Pippa, you think perhaps we're being a little bit fatalistic. Well, the British are famous for this. <laughs> right? Some would say that Britain's greatest export is pessimism. Um, and I do think that there's a, 
an, a sort of underwhelming sense of the economy that maybe is somewhat misplaced. But maybe the key to this is the following. Britain is really good at original research, really good at creativity, not as good as the US or Israel on scaling things up. And maybe that is where we could change policy and make a bigger difference. Now, Eric Schoek, a statistic that haunts people on the left and right of British politics is this idea that by the end of the decade, Poland could be richer uh, than Britain per capita or however you want to measure it. Poland has experienced uninterrupted growth over the past three decades, the longest period of economic growth in European history. Do you think it's inevitable that by the end of the decade or soon after, Poland will be a richer country than Britain? Uh, so Poland will have to sustain the current uh, GDP growth rate, which is uh, uh, which is uh, hi highly uh, highly doubtful it will mm. be possible because Poland uh, was a much uh, poorer country which, uh, when uh, when it started in this uh, uh, growth period, and uh, right now it's uh, uh, when it's more wealthier. We I expect that the Poland. Uh, Poland will not be able to sustain this uh, sharp growth rate, so we still probably will be uh, closer to, to get closer to the richer countries. But uh, I'm not sure that we are actually going to be richer than uh, than UK is. Uh, why has Poland's economy come on so much over the last decade, in particular? Also. Uh, probably uh, for me it will be a clear answer: uh, inflow of uh, foreign capital mostly from the European Union, as Poland was a net beneficiary of uh, uh, European flows from the European budget, and uh, also foreign direct investments. When Poland uh, ceased to be coming a part of the communist bloc, there, there was a large inflow of many, uh, many investments, uh, ranging from very basic ones to, uh, to more advanced in last years. And two things we've been talking about, Britain struggling to do this morning is building houses and investing in public transport infrastructure. Poland's built half a million houses since 2018 and Poland's national railway programme has seen 18 billion invested in its rail network. What sort of impact have those developments had? Yeah, so uh, like Poland ha had a lot, a lot to catch up to other um, advanced countries. So uh, we see there are still there is still room for improvement, and po Poland aims to uh, increase uh, uh, the number of uh, houses being built. There is a new uh, program for cheap mortgages that uh, that could uh, make could uh, make developers to actually build more houses. And in terms of uh, rail uh, railway uh, railroad program. Uh, we see still people uh, people wanting to drive more cars and uh, following the uh, European football championships in 2012 when uh, Poland was hosting it together with Ukraine there were a lot of roads being built and it's still uh, it's still something that uh, Poland uh, Poland is uh, uh, facing so it's still ongoing uh, problem uh, Sam a final word from you based on what you've heard um so the point that was raised about scaling is really important, I think. Um, one of the problems with scaling is you talk about the great life sciences businesses in Cambridge and Oxford, but there's almost no lab spaces for them to actually grow into. We need, I think I think it was 200 football pitches worth of lab spaces, what's being demanded. To, you know, investors are desperate to actually invest and build them, but currently you can't. And if you can make it easier to make these kinds of investments that are really no-brainers where people are 
desperate to actually put the capital down, then you can start growing. But at the moment, uh, we throw up too many barriers to them and we need to change that. Why is Britain skint? And might the answer lie in the UK's, in the USA's poor estate rather? And how has Mississippi overtaken the UK in average household earnings? I've been speaking to the former Tory MP, Douglas Carswell, former UKIP MP indeed, who moved to the United States after Brexit. I started by asking why he made that journey. Well, I went into politics in Britain to get Britain out of the European Union. Um, I was delighted that having uh, switched parties and uh, called a by-election and helped co-found vote leave, we we left the European Union. And um, literally the week after we formally left, I started a job here at the Mississippi Center for Public Policy. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge admirer of the United States. Um, and one thing that really attracted me to wanting to come and work in the United States is that the conservatives over here seem to be interested in new ideas in doing new things rather than recycling and regurgitating the old Blairite orthodoxies that I'm afraid to see British conservatives doing um, almost irrespective of who's actually running the Tory party. Talk us through some of those new ideas. What have you been particularly invigorated by? Well, there are three or four things that we've been doing here in Mississippi. Tax cuts, uh, The uh, you know, a family, middle-class family here in Mississippi earning, say, $50,000 a year would pay approximately 15% in federal and state and local taxes compared to almost 23, 24% in the UK. So we've cut taxes fairly dramatically here in Mississippi. We've, um, we're halfway to abolishing the state income tax entirely. That is helping. We've also um, implemented labour market deregulation. It's much harder to employ someone in Britain today than it was 5, 10, 20 years ago. Um, the compliance is really quite debilitating. Here in Mississippi, we've actually deregulated the labour market by removing many of the restrictions that are in place um, we've also seen here in Mississippi, um, we, we've not seen some of the high costs associated with energy policy um, in the UK. Energy costs are much, much lower here. Mississippi is in effect joining rather late a southern success story. Here in the United States, there's been 30 or 40 years of tremendous economic growth in Texas and uh, North and South Carolina and Georgia and Florida. Um Mississippi is in effect catching up with that southern success story. And all throughout the South, we're seeing the same thing. We're seeing low taxes and less regulation leading to huge prosperity. The southern United States is now, in effect, the economic and technological epicenter of the United States. It's the center of economic gravity in America. It's where the growth is. It's where you know Tesla has moved from California to Texas. Uh, people are moving in their tens, if not hundreds of thousands every year to the southern United States. In effect, we've had 15 years of Republican conservative administration here in Mississippi that's been implementing free market ideas, and we're seeing great success as a result. Mississippi's per capita GDP has now overtaken that of the UK. In the UK, despite the name of the people running the country, um, you've had, in effect, 15 years of left-wing governments, and that is why the poorest state in the United States, Mississippi, has now overtaken the UK in terms of per capita output. That agenda sounds like it's not a million miles away from what Liz Truss very briefly tried to do. Yeah. I, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think there were a couple of criticisms I would make of what Liz Truss was trying to do. I'm, I'm not sure that 
the um, her, her fiscal proposals were quite thought thought through. Um, what she was trying to do was absolutely right, prioritizing prioritizing growth. But I, I, I think the fact that Liz Truss tried to do that and was ejected by her own side tells you quite how existential Britain's problems are. You know, after 15 years of conservative governments, for a single month, they produced a single leader committed to growth. And look what happened to her. There are a number of things that Britain needs to do if it's serious about growth that I think a lot of its own backbench, the Conservative Party's own backbenchers will find unpalatable. And the, the, the Whitehall machine, the uh, people who really run the country, the permanent civil servants, will, will certainly find it unpalatable. So I think any future Conservative leader serious about doing what Liz Truss tried to do, serious about achieving growth, needs to, number one, take on some of their own backbenchers, and number two, dismantle and deconstruct the uh, um, official civil servants around them who, who frankly... Uh, see the administration of government as serving their own interests rather than the national interest. What would you say to people who's, who would say to you and those who sat beside you at the top of Vote Leave that the best thing Britain could do for its GDP would be to rejoin, if not the European Union, the EU single market? Well, they would say that, wouldn't they? I mean, the idea that somehow Britain's economic problems are down to leaving the European Union is nonsense. And it's easy to show that it's a nonsense. Simply ask yourself this question. If, if Britain leaving the European Union was the problem, why is it that the economy of Germany has performed even worse than that of Britain? Surely Brexit um, would disproportionately affect the UK if Brexit was the issue. But actually, the economies of, of, of Germany and um, uh, Italy have performed significantly worse than that of the UK. That that shows you that the problems are not really to do with Brexit. Um, if anything, Britain has failed to take full advantage of, of, of Brexit. But Britain's fundamental problems are that, you know, we have a highly regulated economy and a highly taxed economy. And for the past 20 or 25 years, to try to deal with the sclerotic effect of that, we've used monetary policy to stimulate growth. We cannot do that any longer. And so the consequences of high tax and high regulation can no longer be ignored. Um, really, ever since I think um, Tony Blair came to office, we've seen administrations uh, gradually, incrementally create more and more regulation um, and higher and higher taxes. Um, and that the effect of that economically can no longer be ignored. Um, monetary stimulus is not going to allow us to escape the consequences of high tax and high regulation. What's the single most transformative thing Rishi Sunak could do tomorrow, in your view, to shape Britain out of its uh, stupor? If he was serious about it, he would abolish all tariffs. I mean, the United Kingdom faces a cost of living crisis. So why not give every single household in the UK a massive boost by removing all the restrictions and tariffs that we inherited from the EU, which are still in place, incidentally? Simply eliminating tariffs overnight would have a minimal impact in terms of um, the government's fiscal position, but it would give every household a boost and a bonus by giving them access to cheap imports. I think that that is one thing if the Conservatives were serious about tackling the cost of living crisis, they could do uh, unilaterally remove those tariffs. I mean, I served for um, almost three years as a non-executive director of the Board of International Trade, and I was quite 
staggered at the extent to which it became obvious that the civil servants in that department see the retention of tariffs as a good thing. Um, If Rishi Sunak was serious about it, he would uh, unilaterally remove those tariffs. So is Britain's skin, as Zouan Lai said of the French Revolution, it's too soon to tell. That's all we've got time for on today's Redbox podcast. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe and follow wherever you get yours from. And I'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow. 